This is the second transmission from Resistance Network Radio. Today we'll be talking more about one of the most important things for any member of the Resistance, the need for secrecy and why failing to take the steps to make sure the Trump government stays off your back might sound the death knell for the Resistance, even before it gets off the ground. This transmission also includes a message specifically for journalists. Resistance Network Radio is a podcast to help you understand and acquire the basic tools of resistance, tools the government does not want you to have. This podcast series is not about protests, petitions, or phone calls to Congress. It is about the things you need to learn to keep your name off the lists and your ass out of the jails, because those are the tools that every authoritarian government ever has used against those who resist. All right, let's begin. If you're on social media, you see how appalled millions of people are by the specter of the coming Trump days, by the number of resist and resistance hashtags. They're everywhere. Those words are in the titles or tags of a whole new crop of podcasts and online columns, and they're in millions of tweets. They're everywhere. And yet, even though so many people are aware of and even in love with the idea of resisting the thuggish authoritarian regime to come, there's a peculiarity in the American character that makes actual resistance the kind that helped oust the Nazis from France or that fought the Republicans in Spain. We have a peculiarity that might make it unlikely that we can form an effective resistance in America. Oh, there can be plenty of the kind of resistance that's going on, and all of it is important. The thousands of new online petitions, the demands being phoned into the offices of politicians in record numbers, the protests, though one can see how quickly they're already fizzling. A very significant action is coming up, the Million Women's March on Washington, the day after Trump is inaugurated. But that, too, will come and go. All of it's important, and hopefully the organizers of those actions and more to come will stay committed to them and will keep it up. But if they do become effective, by definition, anyone involved will become a target. When they become a target, a new level of resistance will be necessary. A new level of fight will be called for. Resistance is not something we get to define on our own terms. What a resistance is has already been defined by the many resistances who already fought authoritarian or totalitarian governments before us. We don't get to say, well, this is our resistance and love it or leave it. This is how we're going to do it. Yes, the protests and the polls and the phone calls are a form of resistance, but they should more correctly be called opposition. And as resistance, they are not the resistance. The resistance is not any one group, and you should never let anyone tell you it is, but the resistance are the people who take seriously the need to be equipped as well as possible to handle the oppression that successful political opposition is going to bring from an authoritarian government. The resistance is made up of people scattered all across the country, who take the types of direct actions necessary to deal with their oppressors. 
The resistance is not one centralized group with one centralized leader. Resistance is more than just saying we're going to oppose government Muslim registries or deportations of any of our sisters and brothers. Resistance is more than a petition to prevent some Trump appointee. The resistance is rooted in acquiring the actual tools that are going to make possible the operations to thwart those plans. The tools I'm referring to are simple and free procedures. They are safe and legal tools. They range from learning the attitudes of successful resistances of the past to practicing the methods that will keep you from becoming an easy target for the government. Opposition is the political element, the politicians and the activists who exert political pressures. No authoritarian regime can ever be extinguished without the work of a strong opposition. But the opposition can never succeed without a strong resistance. The resistance is what the opposition is forced to become when the officials in power, or the thugs who enforce for them on the streets, wage the kinds of war authoritarians always wage on the people. By war, I don't mean political arguments or disagreements. I mean war. War in the brutal sense. People getting round up, getting their teeth kicked in, shot while trying to escape, their homes, their businesses looted. That kind of war. Resistances developed to try to save lives in that war and to keep people out of the jails of those authoritarians. Generally, resistances are a response to violent or evil regimes. In our case, in these times, and aligned against the authoritarian government that is on the way in, to be in the resistance is clearly to be on the side of good, on the side of freedom and of important American values like the freedom of assembly and of speech, to be on the side of peace, and to be against war and violence. Resistances, and ours is going to be no different, have to operate in the shadows, behind the lines. They work against an enemy that possesses superior means. In France, in World War II, our resistance could not match the Nazis for guns, for communications, for transport, for jails. They couldn't match the sheer numbers of soldiers and spies under orders. The resistance was outnumbered, so other ways to defeat their Nazi enemies had to be found. Now, look, sometimes I worry that the people who say that there can be no effective resistance in America are right. They might be right. My worries come from years of experience working with revolutionary groups overseas and with securing electronic communications here. In the last podcast, we talked about encryption, but let's review a few things now. Encryption is a way for software to take the digital data of any message, any electronic message, voice, text, email, whatever, and to turn it into a block of random-looking characters, gibberish, that can only be read by the intended recipient, not by anybody who intercepts it. For example, when you send a regular text on your phone, it lives forever on phone company servers and all too often in subpoena documents entered into court records all day every day. If those same messages had been encrypted, they would have only been read by the person that you sent it to. No authorities would have been able to read them. If you haven't listened to episode one, go back and do that. It covers an app called Signal Private Messenger 
for encrypting your texts, chats, and phone calls. That's a free app like everything going to be discussing here, free and open source, not something that I'm promoting or make any money on. Today, we're going to be talking about emails and the easiest way to protect those. A safe, simple way, and yet a way that would have saved Hillary Clinton and her campaign from a lot of trouble because no one would ever have been able to read a word of any of her emails. You, like Hillary and her staff, have the choice of sending emails in the clear, in the clear being without encryption, and exposing it to an easy hack by the Russians and their allies in the FBI and WikiLeaks, or in our cases, in the case of the everyday person, by any of a vast range of authorities who may want to see them. Your other choice is to encrypt them. Now, let's, ju let's just pause to think about that for a second. Everybody knows how easy it is to be hacked. It's on the news every single day. Big corporations are hacked. Politicians are hacked. You've probably had a credit card or a social security number hacked. And yet, even an American presidential campaign did not make the simple effort to encrypt their emails. It would have taken no extra work at all. No loss of convenience. No difference in the immediacy of their communications. It would all have been exactly the same and yet they couldn't be bothered. There was a time when it was understandable not to use this stuff. Back when I started using these technologies at the dawn of the internet, 25 years ago or so, they were complicated. The programs required a level of computer expertise and they took time and they crashed and they hung up and they were buggy. There were all sorts of problems. They were not for the average user. But now they're just as easy to use as whatever you're using now. They're the same, in fact. Signal, the app that encrypts your text, phone calls, and MMS messages, works exactly like the one you're using now. There are no extra steps. There's no extra effort. You just download the app and use it instead of the one your phone came with. And voila, your smartphone communications are out of the hands of the NSA, away from your local prosecutors, your cops, anyone at the phone company who wears a Make America Great Again hat to work and away from anyone who might decide that everybody who signed some petition that they don't like should have an eye kept on them. And yet the reluctance of so many people to utilize such a valuable life-saving technology is the reason that some people, myself included, worry about the chances of success for an American resistance. If someone is not willing to do something as simple as protect themselves and others, from the most obvious and most easily overcome danger. How effective can they ever be in a resistance? If they allow the government to use its surveillance tools against them, what kind of resistance is that? A resistance that gives its people up because it couldn't be bothered to use a different app is not much of a resistance. So let's all decide to take the necessary steps. Switching messaging apps or protecting your email, as we'll discuss in a moment, are not difficult. They require almost no work and absolutely no computer expertise at all. They are uncomplicated and easy to use. In exchange for using them, you're going to achieve an advantage against an authoritarian government that our ancestor resistances would quite literally have had to kill for and were often killed for not having. Secure communications. On Resistance Network Radio, we will frequently discuss secure communications, among other things, because they are the bedrock of resistance. 
you know they're the bedrock because they're the first of the tools that people realize they're missing when the authorities start to get nasty. I just want to mention something that a brilliant history professor at Yale, Professor Timothy Snyder, wrote. It's a brief list called 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. I recommend you look it up. Once again, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Snyder is an expert in repressive regimes, and his lessons are intended to help us understand some of the subtle requirements, some of the mindsets that are essential to a successful resistance. The very first thing, number one on his list of 20 lessons, that he warns of is obeying in advance. Obeying in advance does not even have to be a willing submission to a regime's demands, like the, like the absurd requirement to take one's shoes off in the line at the airport. It can be something like not encrypting one's communications. Now, please note this following point. Every time you send an unencrypted text or make a phone call in the clear or send an unencrypted email, or for that matter, send your mother a photo of your cat and it isn't encrypted, any unencrypted communication is obeying in advance. You might ask, well, if I'm not following some specific order, how am I obeying? And the answer is that the government hates nothing more than encryption. They're not worried about your guns. They have more guns. They have better guns. They have bigger guns. But encryption is the one weapon that deprives them of their most critical resource, which is intelligence. The government has fought for decades to keep encryption technology out of the hands of citizens. Encryption software used to be classified as part of the illegal arms trade. And of course they would classify it that way. It makes perfect sense, because encryption is the only thing that stands in the way of their listening in on you, from keeping you under surveillance, from knowing your plans, from knowing even your thoughts. And it's the only thing that prevents them from being able to gather evidence against you. The government takes surveillance seriously enough that they spend one of the largest slices of our tax dollars on it. Our own tax money is used to spy against us. The budgets of the National Security Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office and the many other electronic surveillance agencies are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Our own money isn't just used to listen in on ISIS's phone calls or to read Al-Qaeda's texts. It's used against every one of us every day. And that's not some conspiracy theory. It is established fact, acknowledged by our own government. For years, the government claimed, and even this had to be squeezed out of them under the duress of congressional hearings, but the government lied that they were only vacuuming up the metadata of all our communications. Metadata is just a timestamp. What machine located where called other, or called what other machine at what time. But then Edward Snowden provided the documents that confirmed what the journalist James Bamford had reported years before, that all the content of every communication is intercepted and stored forever. Every text you've ever sent, every phone call you've ever made, every email, government's got them all. Bamford even reported on the efforts to make that kind of surveillance so granular, so detailed, as to include radio calls to taxis. When I told a young man about this the other day, he said, big deal. So the government knows I'm going to my girlfriend's house at eight. Why should I care about that? 
Well, if that, or any other message, existed in a vacuum, it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't have to care. If it was just one of billions of mundane texts and emails, it would never mean anything. They're not concerned with what time you're going to go see a friend. They're not trying to keep tabs on you for that sort of thing. But what if one day that young man attends a political protest that offends some thin-skinned authoritarian ruler who instructs his FBI to put together a list of people who work against him? Or a local cop or a prosecutor who process a warrant for that kid's data? Know this. Millions of such subpoenas have been requested. Only three are known ever to have been denied. When a judge is asked to sign a surveillance warrant, they sign it. Okay, so they get your data and see nothing more damning than a plan to show up at a girlfriend's house at eight. Nothing there, is there? No, that shouldn't be anything to worry about until maybe they run a cross-check on the girlfriend's father or her brother or her classmates. Was that her sister at the protest? Let's check her out. Let's check her friends out. A few steps down any line will connect any person in America to a felon. And such a connection might justify an interview in a locked cinder block room someplace. In another episode, we'll deal with handling those. When an authoritarian is in power, the principle that you are innocent until proven guilty is just something they laugh at. The power to assign guilt to you is one of their most powerful tools. With a corrupt racist at the head of the Justice Department and the FBI, do not expect anything less. Let's get back to that text about showing up at the girlfriend's house at 8 o'clock. How much trouble do you think the government would have finding a hit and run that happened in the area at 8.05? Or a break-in, or better yet, an assault on a police officer? How innocent is the message going to seem then? Your data, no matter how innocent it really is, no matter how innocuous it is in truth, can always be used against you. Always. The truth means nothing. It's malleable. Therefore, why hand them any of your communications? There are still other reasons to encrypt your communications. For one thing, you've got to get into the habit of doing it, of using the technology. If you wait until you're in some kind of trouble or when you've already agreed to show up at a protest or sign a petition sponsored by someone the government is going to declare a terrorist later, it's already too late. You have to establish encryption as the normal mode for your intercepted communications. That way, the one encrypted message that you really need to be secret when you're in trouble or helping out someone who is, then that message won't stick out like a sore thumb. And even if you never once in your life have to worry about an attack from the authorities, there is still a reason to encrypt everything. Even a text or email to remind you to pick up a loaf of bread at the market. Every time you do it, every time you encrypt something, you assert your personal power to not obey the government's command that you be their bitch. They tell you that good citizens send everything in the clear and our response is like hell they do. Period. No. And that's the beginning of resistance. Resistance that works. That only strengthens your position and gives them nothing for free. And still a lot of people don't do it. If you're one of them, why? 
If it's even possible that all of that is true, that sending encrypted messages is no more difficult than sending regular ones, and that only by encrypting them are you not obeying in advance the government's orders to cooperate with their surveillance of you, then why wouldn't you do it? I don't have the answer for that. I only know that those who do take these measures are the ones who will become safer and more effective operators in the resistance. People who attempt underground work without taking precautions like these might not only be arrested and jailed themselves, but they're also going to be risking anyone else they communicate with. Secure communications are essential to the common good. I'd like to add a special note here for journalists. Reporters are always among the first to be targeted for surveillance by authoritarian regimes. It's only natural. After all, reporters have confidential sources. They're often people inside government who leak information. And reporters are the conduits of information that the regime does not want the public to hear. They don't want the public to know how they really operate. Every journalist functions under the same basic rules concerning sources. The main one is that when a reporter is promised to keep a source's name secret, it is a sacred trust to do so. Even if ordered by a court to reveal a source's name, any ethical reporter will choose to go to jail, and many have. So if you're a journalist and not using encryption, you are not only risking your own confidentiality, but also that of the sources you have promised to protect. The people whose duty you have, as you well know, to protect. And in an era when communications are nearly all electronic and when even face-to-face -face meetings can be anticipated by the authorities based on your messages or emails, journalists who don't take adequate precautions to guard their communications are taking an unconscionable risk. If you're a journalist, imagine hearing that a source of yours has been arrested as a result of a communication with you. It happens. Furthermore, if you're a journalist, having a way for people to send you confidential material can be the thing that helps somebody decide to trust you and to share information with you. The New Yorker magazine has an entire process for uploading secret material to them anonymously. A few days ago, I ran a search on a database where everyone who uses a type of encryption that we're going to talk about in a future episode, uh, where people can upload the secure way to contact them. There's no risk to an upload like that. It doesn't tip anyone off. It doesn't do anything. It just lets people send you encrypted emails. And not one of the 20 journalists I entered, journalists, all of them using the resistance hashtag or resist hashtag, or journalists broadcasting or writing about resistance, not one of them was there. Not one. Some journalists are listed, and some well-known ones, like Glenn Greenwald, who broke the Edward Snowden story and won a Pulitzer Prize for the reporting. Two New York Times reporters are there. There's a handful of others. But even the journalists sending out hundreds of tweets a day about resistance and discussing the dangers of authoritarian governments are MIA. It makes no sense at all. And though many of these journalists clearly know a lot about their material, they know all about authoritarianism and resistance, not understanding how easily they can be targeted and how to prevent it is hard to understand, especially when the incoming government has said that they plan to make life hard for journalists. Just look at how Trump has been treating journalists for his entire campaign. 
precautions need to be taken. Okay, but hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in becoming one of the people who is now going to take those steps necessary to prepare for as strong a resistance as possible. Whether you're in the resistance for oppositional politics or for other types of actions, whatever they may be, let's take the steps to build that strong resistance. Now, it is essential to try to get people to start doing these things as early as possible, to start now not to wait until violence and fear force us to make it happen. A resistance formed sooner or later against every authoritarian regime, like the one Trump has promised. Clearly, it would be a good idea to be ready for it, to be thwarting their surveillance and learning how to avoid their nastier techniques effectively from the get-go. And now is the get-go. The first step you take is the most important. It's going to energize you and it's going to empower you. It's not going to be anything illegal or dangerous. It's just going to be a step to protect yourself legally and safely. In wartime cities under occupation, an act of resistance might be bringing someone a bowl of soup while they avoid being sent to a camp or carrying a message to someone or keeping an eye on the street to let them know when the coast is clear. Small things, and yet they're concrete steps. They're acts of resistance. In the previous podcast, number one, we discussed an app called Signal Private Messenger. Signal Private Messenger to protect your texts and phone calls. Today, we're going to talk about another free service, and this one's for email. Like everything that's ever going to be recommended on this podcast, this software, this website, has been verified as safe by absolutely trustworthy methods and people but it's a process that you should understand for yourself so you can check it out for yourself. It's called open source. And open source means that all the code, all the software is freely available for anyone to inspect and check. And a lot of talented people do just that, people who've spent their whole lives working on these issues. Nobody has to take the word of some person or some company that what they're using is safe. It would take a an enormous conspiracy among people with impeccable reputations for these open source services to be compromised. In other words, what is recommended on Resistance Network Radio is going to be safe for you to use. The more you get in the habit of verifying that for yourself, though, by looking it up online, the better. With all of these programs, you can still make mistakes in the way you use them, and we'll discuss that in another podcast soon but they are rare and they're easy to learn not to do. Okay, so today's recommendation is for a free email service called Proton Mail. Their web address is protonmail.com, Proton Mail, one word, P-R-O-T-O-N Mail. Proton Mail works like Gmail. It's an online mail service. You go to their website on your desktop, laptop, or on a tablet, or you go to their smartphone app, and you log in with the username and password, just like you do anywhere else. But then what happens next is different from what happens at, say, Gmail. At Gmail, once you log in, your emails pop right up. And by the way, did you know that those emails, your emails, are perused by Google? Look at the terms of service. They call personal information about you from the emails they run through their service. And the emails there live forever on their servers. For the most part, it's just used to target advertisement to you. But who knows what other data mining goes on? And who knows who they share it with? 
The key thing is that if the FBI hands Google a warrant for your emails, they get them. And they're unencrypted and they're free to read them. Here's the difference with ProtonMail. At Proton, the messages in your inbox are all encrypted. They do it on their end, and so there's no extra steps for you to take. The encryption is based on the password you provided, so even Proton can't read the messages if they wanted to. Only you can decrypt the messages by providing the password that unlocks your inbox and the messages in it. So first you log into the site, but then you enter a password to decrypt your inbox. That's the only extra step, the only thing that makes it different from, say, Gmail. And ProtonMail does not keep copies of anything on their servers once you delete your messages. So there's nothing to get a warrant for, even if somebody comes after them one day. If all that isn't good enough for you, check this out. ProtonMail isn't located in an American city where the FBI can walk in anytime they like. Proton is located under a thousand feet of mountains in the Swiss Alps. And it's covered by more than the rock. They operate under strict Swiss privacy laws. Those laws aren't bulletproof, but they're pretty tough and a lot better than ours. And it would take a government a long time to work their way through the system to gain access. And once they did, your messages would all either be gone or they'd be encrypted anyway. All you have to do is go to protonmail.com, pick a username and a password. You'll confirm your account with either a backup email address or by using a CAPTCHA text. I recommend using the CAPTCHA so that there's no connection between any of your existing accounts and your new ProtonMail account. But even if there is, with all the other safeguards in place, it's not going to be harmful to you. Next thing is to download the ProtonMail app from Google Play or the App Store for your smartphone. It's a beautiful app and it works perfectly. And this way you'll have it on your phone and be able to use ProtonMail from there. There are no in-app purchases. With an unpaid account, you get 500 megabytes of storage and you'll be protected. The only downside is that you're going to have to go to the trouble of entering the extra password to decrypt your inbox. You don't have to do it every time. As long as you're logged in, your inbox will stay decrypted. So it's truly not a big deal. And of course, with a new email address, you're going to have to inform people of your change of email address. For some reason, people hate to do that. Really, it's not a big deal. So if any of that is too big a price to pay more than you're willing to do, you should be questioning how effective you really are planning to be under the conditions of a real resistance when it's required. And if that's your decision not to do stuff like this, at least try not to compromise others when you choose to forego security. The only way to do that really is not to communicate with them at all. You'll be making a conscious decision to forego an enormous amount of safety and security. Okay, so far we've spoken about two simple and free strategies to keep your phone calls, texts, MMS messages, group chats, and emails secure. By putting these two things into practice, you're going to contribute to the safety of others and to the general health of the resistance. It's not just about you or about any single one of any of us. The resistance is most definitely not an army of one. So remember, giving away a lethal advantage to your opposition is not what a winning resistance looks like. Point your browser at protonmail.com. Search for the ProtonMail app on your smartphone and take the five minutes to sign up and confirm your account. Don't put it off. Do it now and get 
one other person to do it now too and get them to get other people to do it now too. As for this podcast, anticipate more steps to come. Subscribe to the podcast so that you know of future suggestions. And to help others find this, leave a review on iTunes for the podcast because that's the only way it becomes visible to people searching there. This isn't to make money or to make anybody famous or to get attention. It's to build the resistance. The rest is up to you. This is Resistance Network Radio, signing off.